looks like we're a few minutes over time, so we can go ahead and get started here. We'll open up to uh, Luke chapter 18, just so we can get our bearings. I kind of want to point this out because it'll help us with our read on what's coming up. The next parable we're looking at, I think the parable of the minas, if I'm not mistaken, over in chapter 19, starting at verse 11. But if we, like I said, if you just flip open to 18 first, I want to connect some overarching themes not only in Luke's gospel, but particularly in this section, which I think will help us understand what's what's going on a little more deeply. Um, we're in the middle of vacation Bible school. It just started today. If I'm a little zonked out, if my words aren't coming to me, uh, I apologize in advance. But let's open up with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, as your Son teaches us in his words to humble ourselves before you, that you may exalt us, and not to exalt ourselves, lest you cast us down. We pray that by the power of your spirit, you would humble our hearts and minds to receive your teaching, to believe it, to understand it, to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we can go back earlier, but I think 18 is sufficient for the theme. If you remember the parable of the persistent widow, you've got the the justice, um, or, well, you've got the... Uh, a, what is his name? He's a judge, for crying out loud. Yes, you've got the unrighteous judge and then you've got this this widow who has no standing so you've got this high and mighty and this lowly and the lowly prevails that is that theme can be seen again in the pharisee and the tax collector we've got the pharisee with all the status the tax collector with none of it the tax collector prevails so you've got these episodic treatments of the lowly being exalted, even over against the high and mighty. That continues if you flip past the the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. That's the one in the temple, you know. Thank God that I'm not like this other man. And the man who humbles himself and says, make atonement for me, he goes home justified. Look what comes next. It's let the little children come to me. The disciples, of course, are rebuking. This is worth pointing out just as a tangent. Look at 15. Now, they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. So this is an example of not letting your child become old enough to make his or her own decision to come to Jesus. (laughs) And Jesus doesn't agree with his disciples and say, right, right. They need to come to the age of accountability so that they can make their own decision and return to me. Jesus simply receives the infants as they're being brought to him in their arms, probably the women's arms. So chapter 18, verse 15 of Luke's gospel, that's where we're at. Again, just getting our bearings. Luke's version of the rich ruler takes place here. Now, we already looked at this parable, if I'm not mistaken, back in Matthew. So there's not really any need to revisit it in my mind, unless you want to, or you have a particular question. But the rich ruler is a similar reflection, because here's the rich ruler, here's this moral guy, here's this wealthy guy, it's obvious that he has everything going for him. But he doesn't follow Jesus. He won't receive Jesus as his Lord. And so he ends up going away sad. 
So here's someone who ostensibly has everything, but because he doesn't have Jesus, he in fact has nothing. All right, so the theme kind of continues here. Uh, Jesus goes on to foretell his death a third time. That's um, verse 31 of chapter 18. And then in the healing of the blind beggar, you have a similar theme taking place here because it's ironically the blind man who sees who Jesus is while all who have their sight can't see who he is. So you again have this reversal theme. The blind beggar is the one who truly sees and is truly blessed, even over and against Jesus' nearest disciples at this point. Okay, Zacchaeus, again, the theme of a tax collector, and here one who is unscrupulous in his tax collecting, and indeed is somewhat of a thief, quite evidently. But salvation comes to his house as a true son of Abraham, whereas those, the Pharisees who pride themselves on being sons of Abraham, reject Christ and reject his salvation. So at chapter 18, verse 10, or have we gone into 19? We're in 19 now. 1910, excuse me. You have Jesus say, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So that echoes not, not to those who are found, not to those who are well, but for those who are sick, he has come and to seek and to save the lost. That leads us up then to the parable of the ten minas, which you've probably heard this as a, as a parable about stewardship. And I don't deny that that's a component of it. But that's like a B-class component. The A-class component, the kingship of Jesus and whether or not Jesus is received. So you can see that the fulcrum or the hinge, thoroughgoing through Luke's gospel, but just so particularly evident in this section, is whether or not one will receive Jesus. <clears throat> whether or not one will humble himself and reckons, reckon himself to be sick, lost, a sinner. If you will, then Jesus is for you. If you won't, then he isn't. And that parable then really articulates this point. That's the A-class meaning of the parable. So we'll pay attention to this and we'll see it as it plays out right from the lips of Jesus. So at verse 11, as they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell them a parable. Now, again, the things they have just heard, Luke connecting the context, Luke saying, hey, what just came before with Zacchaeus, and especially with our Lord's words that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, it's in this context. You need to have that in mind when you hear this next parable. So as they heard these things, he proceeded, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. What does that mean in Luke's language? What does near to Jerusalem mean? Salvation? Yes. He is, he is the, the big turning point in Luke's gospel is he sets his face for Jerusalem. And that language comes from the Old Testament, particularly emphasized in Isaiah, that he will set his face like flint. He will not be deterred. He knows he's going to Jerusalem to die. Nothing can deter or dissuade him. So that's a pivot point that really divides the Luke of uh, the Gospel of Luke in two. 
And so we're reminded that as he is nearing his end goal, he is nearing his martyrdom. So Luke here layering a whole bunch of data. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. This too is a common misunderstanding we've seen. What do they think is going to be the appearance of the kingdom of God that has not yet come, but is about to come? They're going to be cabinet positions and they're going to be there. Yes. They think that Jesus, if he is the Messiah, has come to overthrow the Romans so that they can reconstitute the kingdom in the promised land and return it to its former glory. But many of them don't think that Jesus himself is the person to do that. They think that Jesus is the prophet or forerunner of someone else who is going to do that. You can see some of that sentiment echoed in the crowd that decides for Bar Abbas rather than Jesus. Now, we're told he's a murderer, but there's more to it than that. He's an insurrectionist. That's the nature of his murder. It's maybe maybe one of only a handful of things that Mel Gibson's passion gets wrong is they tend to present uh, Bar Abbas as if he's sort of this slobbering serial killer. That's not what's going on at all. And why I'm pronouncing it so strangely is to make the point, Bar means son of, Abbas means the father. So what you have are two different messianic figures, one who is going to come to be killed and the other who has come to kill. And two very different kingdoms, two very different messianic figures. And the crowd at that pivotal moment says, We'll take the violent one. We'll take the violent insurrection. We don't want the one who's come to be crucified. We don't even understand that. It makes no sense, which we'll see as we get into Jerusalem here in the next chapters of Luke. We'll see that theme drawn out in, a con- in the context of another parable. Okay, maybe that makes the point, but Luke certainly belabors it here in his introduction. It's offensive to Jesus anytime they suppose that the kingdom of God will come in the future, even if that's the immediate future, because Jesus' entire ministry has been the kingdom of God has come. It is at hand. <laughs> so they're, they're, they're saying, no, 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 we're really looking forward to it to come, for it to come, is uh, an obvious rejection of Jesus, that he is the one who has brought the kingdom. Okay. Enough of the intro. 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman. And again, this is going to be a little scandalous to our ears because the American religion is one of radical egalitarianism. The language here is pretty stunning because it nobleman is actually an anthropos, a man, or a certain man, Pith, the article, and then uh, oigenes, which is where we'll get the word eugenics. So this is a man of high genealogy. This is a man of high or noble genetics. Implicit therein is that that's one of the distinctions. 
low genetics versus high genetics. We want the high genetics to be our ruling class, not the low genetics. So a way that we're not allowed to think anymore because everyone's equal, always, no matter what. That's kind of insanity. I hope you can tell I'm being sarcastic. And it's refreshing to just hear Jesus say out loud what we all know to be true. <laughs> all men are not created equal in this in that particular sense in which late Americans take it, that we all must have equal IQs or else it's some systemic problem. Okay. Not the case. All men are created equal in the sense that we are God's creatures. None has more value than another as his creature. All are redeemed by Jesus. None has more worth than another in that respect either. But to somehow infer that it's even remotely Christian to think that all men are thus equal is a complete misunderstanding of Scripture, not to mention a, a complete jettisoning of common sense. The religion of our age makes you look at things that you see that are obvious and deny them by saying, oh, no, no, everyone's evil. There's no such thing as a nobleman. There's no such thing as someone of superior genetics. Okay, that's long enough lecture. I'm just going off on that tangent because the American religion is completely opposed to these words that are coming out of Jesus' lips. All right, a noble man went off into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, we've got some of the themes of the kingdom. Those are obvious. Something that is worthwhile to have in the back of your mind, and the study note draws our attention to this, is what's going on in the current events. So if, you'll, if you do have a Lutheran study Bible, yet one more reason to get one if you don't have it, is if you drop down to, did they say it in here? Maybe it was in the commentary. Nobleman went into a far country, received himself a kingdom. Hmm, I thought it was in here. Yeah, it is. It is. Okay. So you got to go to the study note that's um, chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. It's the summary. Parable recalls when Archelaus, the son of Herod the Great, went to Rome. See how a man is going off to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom? Archelaus, the son of Herod the Great, this is the current events, went to Rome to be confirmed by Caesar as king. A delegation of Jews also went to Rome to protest the appointment. Caesar still appointed Archelaus as king, but he gave him a smaller kingdom. All right, so there's a parallel, and you can hear that kind of echoing in the background of what Jesus is going to say here. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return calling 10 of his servants again his slaves he gave them 10 minas a mina is about uh, a three months wage not a lot but substantial and he said to them engage in business until i come that's a fine enough translation but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him 
saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Okay, so not immediately obvious, maybe, is the fact that he's got these 10 slaves of his who are on his side, or supposedly on his side. They're loyalists. There's also this delegation that's antithetical to him receiving the kingship. We can line this all up one-to-one at the end, if you remind me. But more to the point, just hear it as Jesus initially taught it. So then he comes to his loyalists, the 10 slaves who are supposed to know who he is, supposed to be for him and for his reign. And also he's entrusted to them his own money, his own trust. So then he wants to settle accounts, a common theme, that they might know what they had gained by doing business. All right, now we're not told about all of the 10 servants or how all of them uh, conduct themselves. Just We're just given three. So 16, verse 16, the first of the slaves came before him saying, Lord, your mina, now pay really close attention to this because there's a lot of theology loaded in here, just the way that this is constructed. Uh, how would it naturally be? Lord, I conducted business as you told me, and this is what I gained. I being the subject, I doing the doing. But look how it's constructed. Lord, your mina, so your mina is the subject. And who, what's going to be doing the doing? The mina itself that belongs to the Lord. Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. That's pretty good return, isn't it? Is that a thousand percent? Is that how that works? I need my son here. Yeah. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. That's pretty darn big promotion. <laughs> so when you when you um, go off to a far, uh, far country like Archelaus did, and yep, we acknowledge you, you're going to be the boss, you go back there, your loyalists get mightily rewarded and you say hey you're going to be a manager of these cities so 10 cities um from one mina you know three months of wages to being in charge over 10 cities that's pretty darn good and the second came saying lord again look at the construction it's not a mistake your mina has made five minas And already just from the language itself, we can tell who the Christians are in this parable. (laughs) Notice how they're humbling themselves. Notice how it's not like, look what I did. That would be to exalt yourself before the Lord and thus be humbled. They're humbling themselves. Not I, but your mina, right? And so then in humbling themselves, they're exalted. Here, have 10 cities. And then let's see what he says to the next. Lord, your mina has made five minas, so a 500% increase. And, Jesus, or, and 
the Lord said to him, and you are to be over five cities. We also note that there's a kind of, even though it's a profound graciousness to reward, I mean, okay, so he went from one mina, three months to five minas, 15 months. I mean, that's significant, but 15 months wages, a year and a quarter, is that equal to five cities? Definitely not. So there's a profound graciousness here, but it's also wed to a certain sense of justice. You see how those things aren't antithetical to each other. The one whose mina earned 10 minas gets 10 cities. It's way over the top graciousness, and yet there's a correlation. There's a kind of justice there. This is a great paradigm. And I'm not saying that Jesus is explicitly teaching this here necessarily. He probably is, but whatever. But this is a great paradigm with which to understand rewards in heaven. Whatever rewards you get in heaven is just grace piled upon grace and undeserved. But there is yet a kind of comparative justice to it, a kind of comparative fairness to it. So you would want to set, if you're going to meditate fruitfully on heavenly reward as a concept, you'd want to set this parable on one side of the coin and on the other side of the coin, the parable where all the laborers go into the vineyard at different times and they all receive the same wage. Both of those are true. Both of those express different sides of the same coin of how the kingdom of grace works and how it works not in antithesis to justice, but how it has its own form of justice woven within. Okay, that takes us to 20. Then another came saying, so here's the third and final. Here is your mina, which I kept. Now, do notice the subject change. Who's doing the doing here? Which I kept laid away. Now, what's the problem right off the bat? Okay, good. I think you're a little bit ahead. That, that I mean, all of those things are definitely true. Okay, what's the problem with this right out the gate? He didn't expect his return. Okay, that's part of it. That's that's still a little bit down the line. There's there's a fundamental point, and we. Yeah, I did some. Right? And it was the antithesis of work, right? Yeah, that's a point to be drawn out for sure. Yes, yes. But therein already lies a huge problem. Because look back at 13. This is the, this is the key to understanding all that flows forth. So in 13, calling 10 of his slaves... The nobleman gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business. The Already, the command isn't profit. I expect such and such a return. Or if you don't feel like engaging in business, put my money in a bank. Or if you don't feel like engaging in business, go bury it. He flat out says, engage in business. That's the command. 
So if he's going to be, so if you're a faithful servant, you are going to engage in business. So right off the bat, he says, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away. Lord, I am the Lord because I rejected your very simple command. I wouldn't even do what you said. So even within the group of the loyalists, the slaves and servants of the man who was going to receive a kingship, one is found to be unfaithful. So even I think here we can draw the point in that one-to-one direction, even amongst the Christians who want Jesus to receive the kingship of the world and to come back, some will be found unfaithful. Some will be found fundamentally disobedient. If he had said, I want you to just sit on your derriere and rest until I return, this guy would have gone out and got busy. So it's a fundamental antithesis to the lordship of this nobleman, even amongst his loyalists. Okay, so from that disobedience flows all the rest, much of which you astutely mentioned. Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you. Is that true? No. It's not true at all. If he were afraid of him, he would have done what he was told. And even if he lost the whole thing, he would have said, I knew this would ha- this hap- would, it was going to happen, but I'm, I'm an idiot. I can't handle money. But I did what you told me to do. I'm sorry. I've got nothing. What do you think the Lord would have said? That's thing. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I told you to engage in business. You win some, you lose some. And especially in the spirit of Luke, it's just money. We don't idolize money. Okay. So this man uh, is completely disobedient and he's exposing himself with every word. I was afraid of you. No, you weren't. And Jesus is going to fetch this out or the nobleman in the parable is going to fetch this out. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. Is he? No. Yeah, I don't know. He just doled out 10 minas. He just doled out 30 months worth of payment to mere slaves. He doesn't seem to be a severe man to me. Austeros is the Greek from which we get austere. You are an austere man. He doesn't seem austere. So here's, so it's not enough for him to say, look, I, I disobeyed, uh, disobeyed you. I don't fear you at all. I'm lying through my teeth to your face. And now I'm going to accuse you of being a severe man. <laughs> Well, and because if he was a severe man, he would have said, oh, I better be working hard. Absolutely. And then he did just the exact opposite and be a lazy shipper. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So this guy's full on a hypocrite and he's being indicted by every word that comes out of his mouth. Now, this is uh, this is a foretaste of the judgment. Every person who rejects Christ thinks he has an answer. <laughs> and however you answer is precisely the indictment. (laughs) Your own words can and will be used against you, and profoundly so. All right. So he is uh, clearly exalting himself here, 
already in several ways that we can detect. Now, he should just shut up, but of course he doesn't. That's not the, that's not the nature of evil. So comes a charge describing the severity or austerity. You take what you did not deposit. That's a lot. I mean, can you believe the gall? Yeah. He just got handed three months for free and just, hey, blank check, go conduct business. See how you do. And instead he says, you take. The exact opposite's true. He gave. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Now that's ridiculous because he did sow and yet he's not reaping and all on account of this scoundrel i mean the irony is so rich so poignant so dense this is just one of many places you can just marvel at jesus preaching i mean he did this off the cuff he didn't look down at his freshly printed out word document just loaded this all in there it's just insanely wonderful yeah (laughs) yeah he is the ai right (laughs) yeah yeah exactly so okay so this is nasty I mean, he's just flat out charging him. So 22, the nobleman said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man. So, I mean, you know, to put this in modern expression, you knew that I was a severe man, huh? (laughs) Taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming... I might have collected it with interest. Now, this is, a, this is kind of loaded because interest here is usury. The scriptures forbid usury. So, in other words, he's saying, look, you think I'm a wicked man? An unscrupulous man? Then why didn't you go out and gain for me unscrupulously? Why didn't you go violate the law and do it via usury? If you knew I was wicked and severe and exacting and reaping, then why didn't you behave according to your own words. So he's obviously caught him in his hypocrisy. Taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow, why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And then the nobleman said to those who stood by, again to his loyalists, to his uh, fellow slaves, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten mina. Now, there's a, amongst his loyalists, there's a concern over this. And this doesn't seem right. I mean, it seems right that they take the mina back, but why give it to the guy who had the most? So who mentioned given much is required? And I thought he had more talent. There's nothing wrong with that. Some people just have more talent. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's a valid point. This man humbles himself, though, and says the mina did the work. Let's let's take a look at what Jesus says, because I think that this will, again, uh, sort of redound back upon our understanding of the parables and our understanding of the deposit of the word of God. So 25, they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minus. That doesn't seem right. And then he responds, I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
Now, this goes all the way back to the uh, initial description of the nature of the parables. Remember, the straightforward gospel goes out. Those who receive it, receive it as if a single minor. Are they faithful in it? Then they engage in business with that gospel, so to speak. Or are they unfaithful? Do they go bury it? Now, with the parables, if you receive the straightforward gospel, then you have, and to you will be given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. So to the one who has even more will be given. To the one who believes the gospel, he will have even more of the mysteries of the kingdom. But to the one who rejects the gospel, even what he has will be taken away. The parables will do nothing but condemn him and confound him. Now, what's true for the parables is true for all of God's word. And what's true for all of God's word then is true for the entire reality of what it is to be a Christian. If you reject Jesus, if you reject who he is, his graciousness, his goodness, his initial deposit given to you, then even that which he has given to you will be taken away. In other words, you'll be condemned. Yeah. But if you take what he's given you and conduct your business, whether you make five or 10, who knows? Maybe the next guy would only make three. Maybe the last guy would only make one. That's not what's in view per se. What's in view per se is were you faithful with the little bit you've been given, right? And faithfulness means ultimately acknowledging him to be the good and gracious king that he is. That's what faithfulness is. You know, kind of a tie-in on that, Master, is um, what I noticed is on the 10 and the 5, he gave him five cities, 10 cities, which speaks to the kingdom of heaven, which is where we're supposed to be focused on, right? Mm -hmm. It's the kingdom centered every day and focused. So what that tells me is this is a shed a little light on the extravagance of who our God is, his nature, Mm -hmm. until rewarding those who follow him. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great point. Great point. Okay, 27. Now we turn and he speaks to another, to, to that group that we were introduced to originally. Go back to, go back to verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. We've just left that thread hanging up until this point, 27. But as for those enemies of mine, that's he, the people he's referring to, the citizens that did want, not want him to reign. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. You can't have insurrectionists in your midst. They're going to slaughter you or get somebody else to do it. So, all right, if we were to recap and do a bit of a one-to-one, Jesus is the true king. Where is he going to receive the kingdom? Yeah, ultimately, exactly. Even on the cross, as he's going to Jerusalem, Jerusalem's the city of the king. He's going to be enthroned in Jerusalem. He's going to be on the cross. He's going to be crowned with thorns. By humbling himself, he will be exalted. He will ascend into heaven and be seated at the throne of God at the right hand of God. Just and when 
John opens to us the revelation of heaven, the throne's empty, and then Jesus ascends and sits upon it as one having been slain and yet standing. So he becomes the king. Now he returns to earth. This is then the last day. And there were his loyalists, his slaves, which is code language for the apostles, the disciples, and even Christians broadly. And he first engages that group in judgment. We see the profundity of his grace, but for those who hate him and pretend piety while hurling insults at him, they get excluded. They're cast away. And even what they would have had just goes to the others who were faithful. That's the class of Christians. That's how it goes down for those within Christendom. It will be found out that some weren't, in fact, Christian. But then the second judgment commences, and that's the judgment of those who hated him and did not want him to be king. Now, in immediate context, what's in particular view would be the Pharisees and those who have literally been doing nothing for three years, but following him around, looking for some excuse to stone him or push him off a cliff or drown him. Finally, their day of recompense comes. Thus, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Is this not just a um, Luke's version of Matthew 25? Yeah, the the talents and the minus. Yeah, we'll we'll look at the minus because it's a little different, but it's the same theme. There is a a little bit of difference there. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, I'd like you to speak to that. Well, I'd rather do it when we get to Matthew's gospel in a couple of weeks and we're in the parable of the talents. Let's reflect back and see what differences, if any, we detect. That I think that might be a better way to, to go forward. Point of clarification. This one that didn't do anything with the minus that he had. Is this person among the saved or not saved? I think not saved. Because even what he has is taken away. So he's destitute. Yeah. So he, he never really, he was one of those who would say, you could say he was among us, but he wasn't with us mm-hmm. type of thing. Yeah. So he was there, but he, like Judas kind of. Yeah. Judas yeah, yeah. hung around. And, yeah. We think that this, he would have a clue. Yeah, I mean, Judas is a great illustration of this point and may again be a, just a very concrete fulfillment of this preaching. Judas was given the same deposit as the other 11. What did he do? He harbored secret hatred against the Lord and so that even what Judas was given was taken away. Okay, so that's a good concrete example of that. All right, so in one sense, we have this really broad, wide, big-picture teaching of how Jesus will ascend into heaven, receive the kingship, come down, and execute judgment. But we also have, within that frame, all of these interesting theological details packed in and the interworkings of how it is that we as true Christians who love the Lord humble ourselves, receive what he has given us, and conduct business. Whether we profit or not doesn't matter. It's not even in view. It's very much akin to what Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 3, where he says, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. It wasn't my job to give the growth. It was my job to 
be faithful and engage in business to plant. It was Apollos' job to be faithful, to engage in business, to water. But neither of us gave the growth. God did, right? And you can see how it's the mina. Lord, it's your mina that did these things. So we're unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty at best. (laughs) And to God be all glory. That's the point. But the point is that we are rewarded for being faithful, not in the final outcome, but being faithful to the task that he has given us to do. Yeah, please. I'm wondering, um, is this to be read only in the sense of like evangelizing and showing the fruits of the spirit by drawing others into the faith? Or could it be read some other way too? What What do you propose? Or do you want me to propose something? <laughs> I think most broadly, and this is where stewardship would be a sort of point B, it's a stewardship of our whole lives as Christians. Sure. I think more narrowly, more uh, maybe true in terms of like strict exegesis, this would refer to the deposit of the faith. And here I don't mean just like the word of God is in like the pages of your Bible, but like what you've been given and what you taught and what you know, conduct business, which is the same as saying, just be a, you are a Christian, be a Christian. It's not saying be perfect. It's not necessarily saying like, oh, you need to live this completely austere life and, you know, leverage everything for the kingdom or something like that. I mean, God bless you if you do, that's wonderful. Uh, You don't, you won't lose your reward. That's the beauty of it. But there's not a set standard like go out and produce X. Or if you're not meeting level Y, then you're not making it, right? Mm -hmm. If you didn't at least profit one mina, sorry, you're out of the kingdom. None of that's even in view. It's did you engage in business like he told you to? And the business is with what he's given you. And so the to him who has been given, what he has been given, even more will be given. And to him who has been given, even what he has will be taken away. That's language elsewhere used explicitly for the deposit of the faith, the deposit of the word of God, the gospel, the relationship to Christ. I think it's all about the heart of the man or woman. And like on a daily basis, we all have talents that we're given. And to me, from what I've read and what I've studied, it's about using those talents. You're working for God every day. So what does that look like? Where are the blessings you have to you today? And how am I supposed to use the talents that are yours today, including sharing them with others? That's the way I kind of look at it. Yeah, I think your fundamental point, the the foundation you just laid is exactly what this parable is getting at. It doesn't matter how successful you are in that. It matters that you love the Lord Jesus enough to, to try. The alternative is that you don't. The alternative is that you go, ah, what you had? What you gave me, I wrapped it in a napkin, and I buried it. And then what did I do? Lived however I wanted to live. And when Jesus comes and says, hey, what's up? You say, well, you're just a big jerk. (laughs) How dare you judge me? You know, because that's exactly what this guy does. He insults him. You know, he says, he says, I was afraid of you. You're You're a severe man. You're a big meanie. You take what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. You're not just. 
Yeah. So, I mean, any Christian who would have that attitude toward God of like, okay, well, I'm going to take these guys, I'm going to wrap it up neatly and bury it. And I secretly despise and hate him. I'm unfaithful to him. Um, and when he comes, I'm going to insult him. And that's not a Christian. Right. Yeah. So it's the, so again, um, just to, just to kind of really try to drive home the thesis, the point isn't the minus at all. As is so often the case, the parable is really misnamed. I would name this parable something like the kingship of Jesus. If you're one of his slaves, if you're a Christian and you believe that he's the king and you want him to be the king and he tells you go engage in business, you're going to go engage in business, right? You're going to be a Christian. If you secretly hate him, you're not. You're going to take what he's given and bury it and go do whatever you want to do. If you're completely outside of his kingdom and opposed to him, you're going to be an enemy of his the whole way through. And in the end, when he does receive the full kingship, so to speak, when he returns in glory concretely, then you're going to be slaughtered. You're going to be dismissed <laughs> via, via uh, extreme violence. <laughs> Pastor? Yeah, please. Chris is asking my going. Kind of performance metrics, I guess, for kind of like yeah. what <laughs> yeah. makes a success. I just think about this uh, the gospel yesterday, talking about hey, if you just save one sheet, that success in the name of the choice. So maybe we need to lower our goal to just say, hey, I tried and I failed a lot, and maybe I got one out of a hundred or one out of ninety, or one out of maybe that's all it, you know it takes. Like hey, we're yeah. swinging, I guess, so to speak, as opposed to just holding the bat or staying batter class or. I mean, again, it's it's more a question of just fundamental faith. So engage in business. What if they just lost the entire mina? What if they what if they literally had no good works? What if they literally saved no one? What if they but they engaged in business? They recognized that he was the king. They were faithful to the charge he had given. I mean, that that in this parable, if we want to get really tight about it, that's faith. Okay. The sanctification, the level of sanctification, how much they profited, doesn't ultimately matter. It's not even in, it's not even in view here. Like I said, we we because of the descending order. I mean, we've only got two, ten, five. Okay, then we got this guy who like buried it. But what about the other? That's three out of the ten slaves. So what about the other seven? I mean, if you just kind of do the math, you go, okay, so ten, five. Two and a half, uh, what is it? 1.25, you know, and so on, right? By the time you get all the way down there, how much did the how much did the tenth guy profit? Some fraction, some minuscule amount. So the the profiting that that is the sanctification, that did you do any good at all? Did you win any souls for Jesus? Did you whatever metric we might use, I think is irrelevant. I think the parable is. When he said, engage in business, did you? Did you see him as your Lord? Or did you pay lip service to that and be the Lord of yourself? Right? Because that's clearly what this man did. Um, I completely disobeyed you. You said to engage in business. I kept it laid away. You graciously gave it to me. I think that you're an austere man who's unjust. And who's now going to judge me overly harshly. So this is, um, I think that this is really at the level of faith, not at the level of sanctification. 
and to name it the minas and then think about like, are you profitable enough that, that Jesus will welcome you into heaven is like <laughs> the wrong way to think about it. It's really the kingship of Jesus and do you acknowledge it or not? There are some with of his loyalists who don't acknowledge his kingship. In fact, they'll be dealt with. And there are some who quite obviously are outside. They're not his loyalists. They hate him, obviously, and they'll be dealt with too. So talking about the kingship of Jesus, talking about his final return, which makes sense too, as we're drawing near the close of the gospel. And even in the parables, we're going to be uh, shifting over in short order to the parables of judgment or the parables of the end of the age. So do you think they, broadly speaking, Doing business can be, or, or has to be, loving your neighbor. And then loving your neighbor might turn into soul for Christ, but you can't. It has to be baseline loving. I mean, I think even loving your neighbor, properly speaking, if we're going to be nitty gritty about it or technical about it, that's sanctification. So that's a fruit of faith. The question viewed here is just fundamental faith. The concept of faith is like, I am the Lord. Yes, I believe. Okay. In the, in the parable, go engage in business. Yes, I'll engage in business. That's faith. I don't know. There's a couple of things in here that remind me. I'm thinking if the Pharisees and Sadducees are hearing this, they should recognize King Saul on this. Because here, King Saul is given a lot and he throws it away. Mm-hmm. He throws the God has appointed him king. He gives him the thing and he goes unfaithfully to the very end of his life. Mm-hmm. And God says, you're unfaithful. It's just a creep when he's died. When he's and so that's that's what I pick up. But also I'm wondering, it's also when he's talking about this, is what's gonna happen with Stephen when he gets uh, murdered by them? Because they cover their ears and they scream at him when he says, Oh, I see the Lord sitting at the right hand of God, and they're covering their ears saying, We don't want to hear it. I'm thinking to myself, these are some of the dumbest people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well said. Well said. Yeah, those those are clearly um, the ones who hate him and despise his kingship, don't want him to become king. Yeah. All right, so I don't think it's the parable of the ten minus. I think it's the I think it's the parable of the king, the nobleman who becomes a king. And the chief reflection is the relationship that we have to him as king. Reject him outright. That's the group that hates him or be his loyalists and slaves, but either do what he says or do the exact opposite of what he says. True Christian, false Christian. Hey, Pastor. Um, just, just one second, Brad, uh, please. I was just going to say, uh, it seems to me, I, 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 what, what you're saying is so true about the minus. It has really little or nothing to do with it other than he's using this at a point. But I think of King David who had... He was a very rich man. He had a heart after God. And yet he himself said, I'd rather be a gatekeeper in the house of my Lord. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know what I mean? So it didn't mean what he described it was truly important. Yeah, right. Exactly. Your point's so good to remember. I mean, God doesn't care at all about wealth. God doesn't care at all about money. That's part of the joy of 
having streets being paved with gold. You know, the New Jerusalem's like, wait, we walk on stuff's asphalt here. Who cares? God doesn't need our money. He has all, all the wealth in the, in the cosmos. So the idea that, oh, he really needs us to produce those 10 minus for him is ridiculous. I mean, even this man is a king. What are, what are 10 minus to him? 30 months worth of wages? What's that to a king? To a king who owns cities? It's nothing. So again, this just, it has nothing to do with money or wealth management. I mean, if it did, take it reductio ad absurdum the other way that uh, Bill Gates or somebody rich, you know, Elon Musk would be the greatest Christian ever because look how he's, you know, or Steve Jobs, right? Look how he started in a garage and now we all have his iPhones in our pocket. That's um, just not the point, right? It's just exercises in missing the point. Okay, Brad, please. Yeah, my comment was along the same lines as that. Uh, I've heard so many pastors, like on the uh, radio broadcasts, I've listened to our podcast, you know, say, well, Jesus talked about money almost more than he talked about anything. And then they just talk about your stewardship, and it turns into a real, you know, see how you're doing by how you're managing what God's given you, your money. Yeah. You know, and, and it turns into a shame thing usually. Of course, but, uh, in, these, just, in these systems, usually the pastor is the most faithful because he's got all the bucks because he's bilking his congregation out of yeah. it, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Some more reductio ad absurdum. If we take it as that and read it as that, it, it takes us to a place that's obviously absurd. Show me where the pastor right. Show you where it's at. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. Okay, good. Any other uh any other commentary here? This reminds me of there's some parallels with the scattering of the seed in a way and that hard pavement reminds me of this uh guy with the one point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I beautiful parallels to draw there. The sower scatters seed no matter what. He's generous. And uh, likewise, the nobleman gives his minas out no matter what. He's generous. Some places it's fruitful, more fruitful. Some places less. And in, in one instance, not fruitful at all. It's not that the nobleman begrudged this person. Like the sower didn't begrudge the road. He gave the seed. The road didn't receive it. Um, he gave the mina. The mina was squandered. Christ calls many to salvation. If someone receives that call and isn't saved, don't point your finger at the one who gave him the mina, who gave him the seed, who gave him the gospel. Point your finger at the one who rejected it, at the one who squandered it, the one who wrapped it up in a handkerchief and put it away, went on about his life. Yeah, I mean, we've got all kinds of themes here of uh, monergism and um and reward and it's a it's a glorious parable to meditate on because of all of these different angles that christ has packed into it for us all right well i mean i'll simply point out that as you go into the next section 28 is the triumphal entrance into jerusalem and he's riding on a donkey which solomon did uh solomon being uh in a narrow sense, precisely the son of David. <laughs> so when he's riding on the donkey, yeah, there's an aspect of humility. It's fulfillment of the prophecy of, I can't remember where, I think it's 
is it Micah? I can't remember. Um, where he's humble, mounted on the fold, the fold of a donkey. Maybe that's Habakkuk. I can't remember. Anyway, there's fulfillment of prophecy. There's humility themes. That's true. But even more than that is he is showing himself to be the literal son of David. So um, as Solomon rode in on a donkey, now he will ride in on a donkey. All right, that takes us then. What's next? It'll, we don't have a parable now until chapter 20. So we're in Holy Week, obviously, uh, Palm Sunday. He's entering. He's cleansing the temple and teaching in the temple. Um, in chapter 20, we see sort of the final uh, attacks against him um, before his passion. And that's the context then in which we get the parable of the wicked tenants. Chapter 20, verse 9. I am sorry, I have to plead guilty here. I don't know if we've covered this. I don't I don't think we did. I think it shows up late in Matthew. That's right, it does. So I don't think we've covered this. So this will be the this will be the new ground for us to get into. Um, but I think instead of just starting that tonight and going exactly one minute, we'll just hold off. So next Monday, God willing, it looks like I'll be in town. We've got some scheduling shenanigans here. It looks like I'll be in town, but we will send out an email if for some reason I'm not. There's all these complexities that the summer brings. Okay, so we'll plan on it, but if not, I'll let you know. And we'll hit the parable of the wicked tenant. Sound good? Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for joining us, you guys online. Appreciate it. Good to see you. Yep. Thanks, you guys. Thanks, Pastor. Yep. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, men's men's barbecue on Friday. Oh, Come man. join in. It's going to be uh, beautiful weather. Great. All right. See you guys later. Okay.